Hello and welcome to Frameline. You're listening to us on Radio Regent and iHeartRadio. This is Barbara Gosowski here with the best co-host, Courtney Small. The only co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so I will take the best as well. <laughs> Last time you had a poem. I wish I, I, wish I had warned you so you could have a poem. The, the co-host with the poem. But okay, short notice, so we, we won't. Anyway, there's a bunch of poet, poetic stuff going on in, the, in what we're going to talk about anyway. So yes, you're going to right. get lots of poetry here, um, especially if you go to this series. We're going to talk about this. Uh, this Really, it's kind of one-of-a-kind series. You don't get to see the Icelandic cinema very often, so it's really exciting. And uh, We've seen a few of them, so actually we're excited. Uh, we're t- going to talk about the series Wayward Heroes, a survey of modern Icelandic cinema. And this is happening tomorrow night, May the 10th, very first film of the series. And it's running until May the 22nd at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. And uh, really, it's really a kind of an offbeat vision this this Nordic nation presents to us, which I think you're going to find really exciting and really different. So first up. I'm going to play an interview that I did with the programmer, Steve Gravestock. And he's a senior programmer at TIFF. Thanks to him, this we're going to get a look into this evolution. And it's a remarkable evolution, really, because Icelandic cinema has really come a long way in the past four decades. He sort of starts in this sort of Icelandic spring, that, that's what they dubbed it of the 80s and then it's you know into the present day we we see we see what's been going on in just those four decades and it is quite a lot of stuff that's going on there's 10 films uh but there's such a diversity of genres and visions and and um and there's a lot of quirkiness in this you know a lot of quirkiness in the cinema anyway i don't want to talk too much i want you guys to listen to steve so here is steve gravestock programmer at TIFF. When it comes to national cinemas, it's it's really generally kind of hard to, to sort of pinpoint one thing because no national cinema is just one thing or has one tendency, especially when you're doing a survey. But as a sort of like a, a point of entry for the audience, how would you, if you were to try to do that, how would you do that? Icelandic cinema is basically essentially dealt with one debate throughout throughout its uh, entire existence. It really doesn't, even though they made films in the early 1900s, it doesn't really start till about 1978, 1979 when they started the film punt. And that early, the 80s and some of the 90s largely deal with the process of urbanization. Uh, Iceland for centuries was a rural country. It was it was mostly farming, primarily sheep farming, and then um, and then there was a fishing industry that started in the 1800s. It, there was always fishing, but it wasn't really an industry until the 1800s uh, uh, and early mid 1900s. But a lot of the early films deal with the move to the move away from the countryside, uh, largely to Reykjavik, uh, which is the only city in the country, or uh, smaller coastal towns, mostly in, on the west coast of Iceland, which is where the fishing is. Um, but in, from the 1990s on, uh, it became, th- there was more stuff about urbanization and a life in Reykjavik and life in towns, uh, but mostly the city, mostly Reykjavik. The population of Iceland is about 325,000 and about 200,000. 
over 200,000 live in Reykjavik or the suburbs. And so you see this really, it's actually very close to Canadian cinema because it often, it's a bit of a misconception that Canadian cinema is largely rural, but there is a movement towards cities, you know, in, in films like Going Down the Road or some of the early Michelle Bro films, uh, um, even Mon Uncle Antoine in a way, it's about leaving that, the countryside. But uh, like the two major filmmakers in, in Iceland in the early, in the, in the 1980s were... August Goodmanson, who did a film called Land and Sons, which is about what it costs to leave the countryside and your heritage, because many people have been farming for centuries. And My Father's Estate, uh, which is a film by um, Raffin Goodluxon, who uh, who basically said, "Why haven't the question raised the question like Why haven't you left already?" Because uh, <laughs> yeah. it was it was very it's harsh farming and it can be harsh farming in Iceland. Uh, it's not uh, it's mostly sort of Lava, uh, so it's it's hard to it's you know crops aren't usually what they would do they would they would raise livestock primarily sheep as I mentioned mm-hmm. and then and then beginning with films like Remote Control um, Oscar Jonasson's film and uh, Julius Kemp's Wallpaper uh, uh, there's a movement towards the city hipsters in the city they're often kind of an underworld thing uh, there's an underworld connection like they although usually they were the worst hoodlums in history. They are totally incompetent. Um, but, yeah, so, so there's that shift. And that's really sort of, by the time you get to the 2000s and 2010, especially in, in the recent decade with films like Rams, like uh, Grimma Harkonnison's uh, film that won the Uncertain Regard Prize in, in, uh, in Cannes, there's a movement back to the countryside and a kind of a, a, a more comprehensive analysis of what that lifestyle meant uh, for so many centuries. And there are still people who, um, there's still, you know, lots of farming that goes on in Iceland, but there are less family farms or what they call freeholders, which is sort of peasants who went on to own their own farm. Uh, and it's more about corporate farming. Uh, um, but Rams, of course, which is, you know, I think, one of the peaks of Icelandic cinema. No doubt it's a very, it's a drama about two brothers and their relationship. Um, and they haven't spoken in century, in decades, uh, which is a common thing in, in Icelandic literature, especially the medieval sagas. But anyway, there's, um, uh, you know, they're sheep farmers and it's about how long the, the line of sheep has been going on. And, uh, and it's also got that sort of strange deadpan comedy that I think is largely propelled by the fact that conditions are kind of harsh there. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and there's, if you go back to the medieval sagas, there's all sorts of really like, well, Icelanders will claim that everything comes out of the sagas, every genre. You know, certainly Westerns, mm-hmm. come. Uh, you can relate those to the uh, sagas. Right. Uh, um, and in fact, when you look at one of the key films of the 1980s, um, a Viking film called When the Raven Flies, which are actually screening, which is a sensational movie. In fact, all the sort of Raven movies are really interesting. But this is a revenge movie, and it's sort of around the Christ- Christianizing of Iceland, which happened around... 1000 AD and uh, it it really yeah it's sort of uh, it's also very much about uh, you know that conflict between uh, uh, you know the sort of Viking ethos and and then settling down and and that kind of thing Um, just to to get back to the humor there's very much uh, um, 
you know, it's harsh conditions, and, and they, they've, they've developed a kind of sense of humor about dealing with those conditions. So when you were talking, I feel like I re really caught on, like, to some of the tensions that you're talking about, the city, the city versus country sort of tension. Yeah. Um, but there's also this underlying pride in who they are. Yeah. Whether it's messy or like there's there's talk about things always being messy. If it's an Icelandic murder, it's a messy murder, you yeah. know. And and jokes about food and uh, with like extra, the sound being extra amplified when somebody's slurping on a sheep's head, you know. And it, I feel like there's all these these things going on through these through the films, no matter what the genre, that are sort of like this is us or we're going to make fun of us or... The humor runs through, there's often a kind of uh, sinister, kind of absurdist uh, humor that runs through a lot of Icelandic cinema. It's especially there in Friedrichsen's films. Mm -hmm. uh, we're opening this series with uh, Children of Nature, uh, which is was his Oscar, the only uh, Icelandic feature film to be nominated for an Oscar. Um, and it has uh, a very quirky but often uh, you know absurdist sense of humor and that shows up in Jar City and certainly Noe Albanoe and I, Robert Douglas's Icelandic Dream um, uh, you know a self-deprecating humor for sure there's a thing about food I actually think it extends back to the you know the kind of harsh uh, living conditions so there's a real concern about food and where the food comes from mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily pretty food as you know from the boiled sheep's head in Jar yeah. City although that's very much about it's a sort of rundown detective and he only eats junk food right, right. Uh, the Icelandic word for windfall is beached whale so uh, <laughs> like means beached whale and that actually shows up in the Vikings uh, films that uh, uh, Gunnlaugsson did so right but I was I was thinking more about for example when he's eating the sheep's head I actually noticed that the sound went up on the slurping. Yeah, I think Balthazar played that. He told me he kind of made it look grosser than it actually is, although I've seen it, and it looks pretty <laughs> gross. Uh, but there's other parts in that film where he's playing around. Like, he'll show... That's the noir, the Nordic noir film yeah. in the series, right? And so there's other parts that are very grisly, and then a sudden cut to someone, a close-up of someone eating a donut. So yeah. there's this thing there. I swear, there's this thing with food where they're deliberately playing around. Yeah, it feels around. more sort of like that naked lunch thing where yeah. you see what's at the end. You see what's at the end of the fork. But for sure, that like that runs through so many movies. Like it's sixty or seventy movies where, and it's always a bad sign when somebody refuses food because it means they're doomed. Uh, <laughs> like frequently, that's what it means. Or if there's a disturbance, a, a meal is disturbed, or there's something wrong with the food. That happens in a lot of, uh, a lot of Icelandic films. It's, it's a serious motif that runs through that I think goes back to the early 1900s. It's in, it's I love like, it. way, I, way back. I feel like this is almost like Canadian cinema that hasn't been touched by Hollywood. Uh, you know, well, there's, there's a, a lot, lot of back talk. and forth, though. There's a lot of, like, directors who are being courted by Hollywood. I mean, Balthazar Cormacar is the obvious one. Uh, like, we're showing Jar City, but, mm -hmm. you know, he did The Deep, which was shortlisted for an Oscar. But he's also done a bunch of movies. Like, he did the, uh, uh, he did two films with uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Two Guns, and Contraband. Contraband was, in fact, an adaptation of one of the first sort of noir gangster movies to come out of Iceland, a film called Reykjavik Rotterdam, which Balthazar produced and started 
card in. And it's very different from the the American version because in the American part of the, the film hinges on this heist that's gone wrong and the, the hero's sort of been forced he, he's he's been to prison and he's out and he wants to clean up his life and you know stick to the straight and narrow and um, he's being forced back into uh, uh, the, the life by an old by an old friend and there's a heist that goes wrong and it involves a Pollock painting and um, at the end uh, everything works out for the uh, for the main character and he's back with his family after all these threats and sort of misadventures and sort of catastrophes and they, they they've got enough to pay their rent and and they're they're cleaning the uh, they're painting uh, the spare room and uh, they're using the Pollock painting that wound up on the floor of uh, the van that they stole as a drop cloth uh, because they, and the joke is they didn't know what it was and they were just happy to like you know survive because uh, there's a real survivalist mentality which again I think the Canadian thing is definitely there for yeah. sure um, or that element that we know from Canadian literature and a lot of Canadian films too um, but the uh, in the American version they for sure know it's a very important painting, and they make a ton of mo- money off it at the end. Uh, so you know, it's 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 yeah, it's a definite. Uh, uh, and I think, that, but you know, Balthazar's made a number of. Uh, I mean, he made Everest. Um, uh, he made the. Uh, he he recently did that film about the woman lost at sea, which again is kind of an Americanization version of the deep, uh, mm-hmm. although not with this sort of local uh, sensibility that I think really propels the deep, which is a great piece. Um, and, you know, uh, Dagger Kari has, uh, um, has made films in the U.S., uh, The Good Heart, for instance, with Brian Cox and mm-hmm. Paul Dano. Um, so but, there's a lot of filmmakers who've been moving back and forth. Uh, but when, you, when we're talking about their Icelandic films, there's this kind of darkness and quirkiness and deadpan humor. Yeah, there's... Um, that, that, that was hinted at at a certain time. I remember the book, uh, the Canadian book about the snow. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Catherine Monk book. Yeah, yeah. what was it called? Oh, Weird Sex and Snowshoes, I think. Right, so I yeah. feel like that kind of describes Icelandic cinema more uh, than it does Canadian, because Canadian is is more heavily influenced by Hollywood sometimes. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's that much weird sex in Icelandic Actually, you're movies. Right. There's, there's no probably sex, not so part. much. It's uh, the other part. You know, it's mostly romanticized, uh, but the... Uh, or it can actually. There's not a lot of romance in uh, in Icelandic films, and very few romantic comedies. Um, one of the few we're showing, which is I think one of August Goodmanson's best films, who did who really started uh, the industry with with Land and Sons, and you know did some um, a number of very successful movies, including On Top, which was a sort of glimpse at a famous uh, uh, famous slash infamous sort of parody of a band, uh, Icelandic band called Studman uh, and uh, that was a big hit he made one of the first adaptations of the saga is a really great one called Outlaw which is based on the Geesley saga uh, which is a pretty important saga and very western too uh, very much like a western but the um but we're showing uh, Gull Sands or Golden Sands, which is kind of like whiskey galore in uh, in Iceland. <laughs> right. And it's about uh, what really changed the country and modernized it was the uh, occupation. First, the British occupation, but seminally, I think the American occupation, because it really modernized the country quite heavily. Up until then, Iceland had been very isolated. In fact, one of the 
one of the poorest countries in Europe. But the the American occupation, which this floats through a lot of Friedrichsen's films, um, really sort of they, they built roads. There was a lot of money. Like in the country, it was really only about a hundred thousand people, and there were a hundred thousand troops. So they dwarfed. They were actually in, in, the occupying force was bigger than the actual population, and there were all a lot of there was a lot of modernization that was part of the. Uh, um, the Marshall Plan after World War II, that sort of, which is a lot of money flooding into, you know, rebuilding Europe uh, and that kind of thing. But uh, uh, so, so the Golden Sands is about the this uh, these. This young man in a rural area, uh, sort of the southern part of Iceland, where the, these black desert sands. I think uh, Denis, Denis Villeneuve shot uh, Blade Runner two thousand and forty nine, or uh, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the same area. Yeah. And the um, anyway, so suddenly the Amer- these American troops show up and they're on furlough and they're looking for treasure. And there's all this sort of skullduggery with the local council. The local council person isn't telling people what's going on, and what the local businessman is thrilled because, as he puts it, where there's Americans, there's money. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the Americans, are, no one knows what they're doing, and the local communist is like, the local guy who's running the youth society is freaked out because he thinks the Americans will steal all the girls. <laughs> and, uh, and the, uh, which was a big taboo during World War II. Uh, and the, and the, he's in love with the local communist girl who's like, you know, uh, constantly agitated. And they organize a big protest about the American presence. No one comes. Uh, and, but there's all this skullduggery. And eventually they find out that they're searching for treasure. There's these rumors about treasures. It, Goodmanson based it on stories that he heard as a child. Um, so, so no one cares about the Americans except there's an entertaining oddity and they spy them until they find out they're looking for treasure. And then they're swamped with people from neighboring villages. And people <laughs> come in from Reykjavik to see what's going on. And, you know, it's a big deal. They didn't care when it was a national issue, but when there was money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and the Alexanders were often, uh, Julius Kemp, the, uh, who's one of the big producers, he produced Icelandic Dream, which is sort of about a failed uh, in Iceland they call them I think it's Bergansky, but uh, they also call them entrepreneurs, like wannabe businessmen who aren't That's very... That's the mockumentary, right? Yeah, yeah, Icelandic Dream, which is hilarious. And it's about a guy who decides, who wants to s- smuggles in Bulgarian cigarettes and tries to sell them like store to store, wandering around, all in the suburbs of Reykjavik, which is pretty dour. And the uh, um, and he basically, it's, he's a total failure until he realizes there's this herb in it that Icelanders think is, has healing properties. So he markets them as, he- markets them as healthy cigarettes. <laughs> uh, so suddenly he's making money, like tons of money, and he's finally exposed. But anyway, the, it's very funny. And Robert will be there, as will Friedrich. Uh, Robert will be there for Icelandic Dream on Sunday. Friedrich will be present for Children of Nature on Friday. And Christine Johannes' daughter will be present for her second feature, an amazing film called As in Heaven, which is very magic realist and sort of shuttles between these time, two time periods. But this girl is trying to uncover the source of this curse on her family and the area they live in. And it's very, 
it's less humorous than some of the others, but it's like quite glorious, uh, visually glorious, and like really captures the environment. But uh, anyway, and Golden Sands, which is which is really very funny, I think. So. All right. Well, yeah, I think you've covered like a lot of the different facets of Icelandic cinema. Yeah. Like, and well, I'm working on a book, so I, it, you shouldn't really ask me a question because I'll go on a great night. But we want to hear from the programmer, so yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Steve. Well, thank you. Okay, that was my interview with Steve Gravestock, who is the programmer for Wayward Heroes Modern Icelandic Cinema, or a survey of modern Icelandic cinema. So as you heard, he was talking about a number of the films and the guests as well. And the whole thing kicks off tomorrow, May uh, the 10th, Friday, May the 10th, with a very important film, in recent Icelandic cinema history uh, with a very important filmmaker present came all the way from Iceland and the film is Children of Nature with the director Friedrich Thor Friedrichsen. This is the only film so far to be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar and uh, Friedrichsen himself is considered to be like the, the grandfather, the, the godfather? Godfather might yeah. be better, yeah. Yeah, Godfather of uh, modern Icelandic cinema. And it's it's a remarkable film. Uh, it's a, it's about a couple – well, it, it starts off about this, this man who's like leaving his, his farm way out in the vast countryside. And he comes into Reykjavik and he's decided that, you know, he's going to spend his final days – with his daughter in Reykjavik, uh, even though he's not that familiar with the big city. So it really underscores that kind of tension and the kind of dichotomy that that Steve was talking about in the interview. Um, and so she she can't handle it. And uh, for a variety of reasons, there's a lot of tensions in the family. And he ends up in an old folks' home where he meets an old flame. And he the old flame just... They they both came from this really small, remote town, village, farming community, and um, they really miss it. And they felt a, a real strong, very, very strong connection to it. And so they decide they're going to find their way back there, even though they kind of know that no one else is there and it's kind of hard to get to. It's been abandoned, right, because of this move towards modernity. Um, and you know, I just found this to be an astonishing film. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. I, it wasn't what I expected, and it went some places that I didn't expect it to. It's it was a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be. And as um, Steve said in his talk about the absurdist humor, mm-hmm. there's a lot of it in, mm-hmm. in this film, but it's also done really subtly. It is the whole mm-hmm. film has this sort of simplicity to it, and it, it sort of comes like comes along in this sort of episodic kind of um, simple structure and has a kind of realism, you know, like a a Mm neo-realism to it, right? Until these subtle, absurdist things just start making their way in very gently, right? And then next thing you know, there's like elements of magic realism. It's not the magic realism of Latin American cinema or writing or it's, it's not at all like that, but it's... Definitely magic realism. Yeah, and it's it's weird though because there's one particular part which I'm not going to spoil mm-hmm. where you know the the fanciful side of the film something happens and I just went 
that feels so out of place with everything else. But then when <laughs> did they, you? It, for me, it it did. But when they're talking about like the the connection with nature and how that's filmed and just the idea of someone leaving a place of isolation to go to the the big city and then realizing that what is here is not happiness, not is not joy, and it's really the isolation that you once had is. But it's not isolation. It's the land. It's the connection to the well, land. Well, yes, yes. Right? But in, in, when the film starts off, he is he's essentially isolated. It's him and his dog, right? For the for the most part. But yeah, the the connection to the land is I thought was fascinating and how that unfolds. And yeah. it's it's a really nice journey. It's a bit bittersweet at times, but I was. I was with it the entire way. Right. But, you know, I think I I don't know if I know the exact moment you were talking about when you sort of felt like that was a bit out of place. It it involves the police. That's all I will say. Okay. But once um, once the the magic realism kicked in or was starting to kick in even, you know, I sort of got into the, the mind, the spirit of that. I got into the mindset of that. I got into the spirit of that. Everything, even though there was a slave voice in my head going, not realistic, the rest of there was another part of me going, not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. This has a different logic now. The realism has been left behind in this journey, and now we're on a road that has a different logic. Mm-hmm. And everything that happens has a logic in that kind of thematic. It also has a very interesting take on modern life as well, because both this one and um, Jarcy, which we'll be talking about soon, mm-hmm. have very interesting views in terms of the relations between parents and children in the city. There's like a bit of a disconnect yeah. there and also how law and order is viewed. Whereas yeah. like, like in this film, the the cops are essentially trying to do their job, but there's a lot of other forces or just groups of people that won't let them do it because it's kind of like we have the power and you don't. Yeah. Right. It's 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 fascinating how that um, unfolds. But that's a different mindset as well, mm-hmm. right? That has a different logic as well. And just uh, to close off, Children of Nature, before we head on to continue with what you were saying about Jar City, um, I think uh, that you know, as you as you mentioned, sort of the c- deep connection with the landscape and. Um, and how important that is. It's also a storyline that eventually starts making sense as a parable. And in that sense, in the end, like the way the way it follows through and the way that it concludes, all of it then, in retrospect, takes on this sort of takes on everything takes on mythical proportions. Yep. Because it's really a more about you know, a bigger need, a big in, bigger human need or a big, bigger societal need to feel a connection to something, right? And, and the way the city's depicted, at least in Children of Nature, there is no real connection between people. And in fact, I would argue that that, that may not be um, like a – that may be an idea that makes sense for a lot of the Icelandic cinema, Mm-hmm. Right, that there's a connection, or at least an ancestral connection. But in this case, the ancestral connection to the land, and I think the land figures greatly in it, in the whole sensibility of the cinema, because there is so much um, focus on shots of the landscape, people in the landscape. Yeah, people, gorgeous shots, actually. Yeah, yeah, and they're gorgeous, and they're vast, and sometimes they're very isolated, but they're there, and they're very important because that's 
they take on like the very important parts of the storytelling. You know, is these people moving through time or and moving through the landscape, and you know just how the landscape depicts them almost. Yeah. So, so that was we're going from Children of Nature, which is showing tomorrow, to and which is you know this magic realist kind of film, into uh, what was one of the first Nordic noir films that we all came to know and love, uh, especially when the girl with the dragon, the dragon tattoos, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> especially when that film came out, that really you know brought it to heights. But here it is in Jar City in 2006. Um, do you want to want to launch us into this one? Yeah, I'm trying to think of how do I best describe this film. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't too, mean to. Give no, no, I'm just. It's it's a fascinating film. There's essentially two separate stories that, and one is about a a father that is coping with the loss of his daughter, and she suffered a release serious illness at a, at a young age. And then there's also the story of a group of police officers who are trying to solve a murder. Some kids find a, a dead body in a, an apartment and the cops are on the scene. And the lead cop, his he has his own issues because his daughter, who I guess is in her 20s or late teens, is a, a drug addict. So he's dealing with personal stuff while trying to solve this um, murder mystery and the two narratives essentially intertwine in an unexpected ways. And I think that's the eventually. best way. Eventually. <laughs> and that's the best way I can describe it without giving away some of the key points. Because what I liked about this film is it it's very concise. Like it didn't feel like a long film. Yeah, it's but very I was very right? with the story. Like I was you know, trying to figure out, well, who is this guy? Who's the body? How does this connect? And as things are revealed, the film goes in different directions, but it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the the conclusion is a little too neat for my liking, but at the same time, I don't know if there's any other direction you could take it once you get there. Uh, but I was completely with the journey. I, I like the the various cast of characters. And then, again, there's moments of absurdist humor. Like, you know, there's a, a cop is chasing a particular suspect who is older, bigger build, but not as a shape. And then through a series of unexpected events, that individual starts chasing the cop. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> moments like that. There's a lot of moments in, of humor and sly dialogue yeah. um, where there's a lot of jokes that I wasn't expecting to, to laugh at even within the dialogue and it was just really well done i was not expecting yeah yeah the no, type it, of film that it turned out to be it's um it's it's great in terms of a, a, the way it tells the noir tale it's great in terms of the mystery the thriller because uh, because of that economic style that it has mm-hmm. right and but yet you know like sometimes you just get like a series of really short shots but each one is just packed you know yep. it, it's like nothing goes to waste in this film. Um, and, and yeah, so there's – what happens is it's like a mystery after – mystery, the, the bigger mystery leads to this mystery, leads to that mystery, leads mm-hmm. to that mystery. And it, it, it started to remind me of uh, what one character says at the beginning about the, the, the main murder, which is, oh, it's typical Icelandic murder, messy and, mm-hmm. you know – and so it started to, to like the film was was economical, but 
um, and very much in control. But then the the narrative started going all over the place. But logically, but still, there was this messiness to it, which it's like, okay, this makes sense when you're thinking of the ethos of where it's coming from, right? And so that that made it all the more interesting, right? Yeah, and there's an interesting um, approach to ancestry because in Children of Nature, ancestry is something to be revered. Mm-hmm. Um, your lineage is something that you you should be proud of, whereas here you see almost like the darker side of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you you have a particular view of it that you're proud of, but then when the reality starts to creep in and things aren't necessarily how you think they're going to be, it adds a completely darker spin yeah. on it, you know, and where where you come from and stuff. It's it's very fascinating how, yeah. they, how they approach that. But the way that they handle the darkness of the subject matter and, yeah, these absurdist moments, for me it really came out, when like when I was what I was saying to Steve, it really came out in this – this crazy food motif, mm-hmm. which was that they kind of went crazy with the food, <laughs> which yep. is – it was like – it's not that the food was not to my taste. It's not that I was judging the food and what – you know, it's that I could tell that the the food was being presented in a way that was a little bit too much. You know, like it had an absurdist element to it. Like it was like if something wasn't didn't, wasn't supposed to look that appetizing, you could tell they they made it every mm-hmm. effort to make it supremely look not yeah. <laughs> appetizing. But there was also this pattern that kept coming up, which is you'd see something dreary or dark uh, murder, you know, part of the murder. And I swear there's one part where you see all these grisly details and then cut and you get this guy eating a donut, a close-up of a guy eating a donut after that. And it's like, you know, this shiny, nice mm-hmm. donut <laughs> and, and right after this shot. And, you know, it sounds like kind of simplistic, but it's not. Yeah, it breaks the, the tension. And it's also – I think it also helps to allow the dark – detail to have a bit of um, compassion. Like there's, yeah. there's moments where – and I'm thinking of a particular incident in the stairwell where it's a, a, a tense moment and the the cop does something and a particular person gets injured and then you see the cop end up helping that person mm-hmm. afterwards. And he has no reason to, yeah. no right to. But there's always compa- – even throughout the film as things are revealed – um, as horrific as some of those things are, there's still a, a weird sense of compassion for a lot of the characters, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of look at certain individuals differently over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. That's that's absolutely true. One thing that, that I'll just throw in before we finish, um, uh, it's not just something to throw in. Actually, this is this is something that you know, sort of struck me immediately was the presentation representation of women. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, at the beginning, uh, you have this unfortunate event with uh, someone's death. Very, very young person, right? And the way uh, that you watch them prepare the body for funeral, and it's this angelic white vision that you you end up seeing. And then throughout the rest of the film, then I think very shortly after, you meet the daughter of the detective, Mm-hmm. who is presented in the worst possible light, yeah. right? He's like, oh, God, are you pregnant again? Like, you know, so there's this sort of 
uh, angelic versus slut. And they use the word slut a lot in the film. Mm-hmm. A lot of women are afraid to be judged. You know, people go back, have to go back into their pasts to, to speak about events now and how what happened in the past is affecting now. So there's past-present things going on. But a lot of what the women are talking about in the past is, but I was afraid that I would be called a slut. Yeah. I would be regarded as a slut. I would be shunned. You know, so there's this this like that dichotomy between purity and impurity in women, mm-hmm. you know. And it's interesting because they don't – with that dichotomy, in a lot of the cases, the women either don't have choice or if they do have choice, their choice is still looked down upon, right? So yeah. it's almost like they have to always be second-class, submissive. Um, and then, but then you have individuals like the the female officer in yeah. this, where I really liked that you know yeah, she yeah. was just a, a nice, strong character. You know, had a couple of great one liners and stuff, but she was just a really interesting police officer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you had there's certain people who are afraid to speak and live in isolation, but when push comes to shove, they find the courage to to finally let their voices out. But yeah, it's 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 very interesting how women's views, their bodies in many ways are suppressed within the context of this film and I guess the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. But the the examples that you brought up with the detective and, you know, some of the women and their choices and their courage, I think is a way of showing how the progression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the talk about the slut idea is in the past. Right, and a lot of what you're talking about that is in the, the yeah, present of the film. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, there's tons to talk about with that film alone, and it's gripping in so many ways on so many different levels. It's really remarkable how how so many different things are going on, and yeah, if you also if you just love a good thriller, a good noir, modern noir. It's great. Yeah, the variety um, of this series is is really wonderful. Mm. A, regardless of what your taste is in film, you, you'll find something to, yeah. to fascinate you. And oftentimes, I suspect you'll be surprised, mm-hmm. even if you just wander into one of the films. But I'm just going to close off by just um, highlighting. I'm not going to say anything about it, but it's just because you know Steve mentioned it. And I think you know this is definitely one that people should be on the lookout for and you know make an effort to go to see because uh, this is why I think that'll you know probably sell a lot of tickets and you may not get to see it which is Rams the film from 2015 which uh, won the Uncertain Regard Prix at Cannes Mm -hmm. that year Um, so that's Rams and that's playing on May 22nd which is the final day Yep. So get your tickets now, tiff.net slash Iceland. And that's it for Frameline. Yeah, that's uh, a wonderful trip to a, another country from the courtesy of your own seat. <laughs> thanks to Tiff for that. Okay, so catch us next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>